So today, we're going to continue on with our study that we've been on for the past few weeks. We're talking about how we live a successful Christian life. But let me just challenge you with this as we begin. You know, we all have the same number of hours in the day. There's 24 hours in a day, and it doesn't make any difference who you are. You're not shorted or you're not given more. It's what we have to spend in our life, no matter what our responsibilities are. So in that time that we have of our day, we're going to be doing something. It's an obvious statement. We're going to be doing something, right? So let me just encourage us all to be wise and then how we spend our something time. That let's not spend it on the things that don't last. Do we understand that there are things that are more important than other things? There are some things that we do that last for an eternity and some things that we do don't last for an eternity. So doesn't it make sense that we wisely choose to spend the time that we have doing the things that last for eternity. How many times do we waste time? Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm as good of a time waster as anybody. I'll be honest with you. But you know, the Lord brings conviction at times to my heart and say, why do you waste the time that I've given you? Because you only have, you only have so much of it. So let's just be wise to do the things that are good and important. Yes, there are things that are good and important that are temporary, but there are so many more things that we can do that will take us into eternity that will go with us. So I hope that that's kind of what these messages that we've been talking about have been doing for us. They're encouraging us how we live a successful Christian life by using our time wisely. Last week we talked about how we run the race that's marked out for us. And we talked about, it was three major points that we talked about, that we run with determination and perseverance. We run with a purpose of the mission, with a goal to win the race. And then we also have to stay on the course that's marked out for us. In other words, we as the runner of the race don't have the responsibility, nor the authority, nor the power, nor the right to define the race course. It's marked out for us. Our job is to run it to the best that we can. And we're we're also told how we keep our focus. We keep our focus for the race by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus is the author and perfecter of the faith. He's the beginning and the end of the race. And as we focus on Christ, it keeps us down the right part of the race course. It keeps us on the middle of the track and it, it helps us avoid hitting the bumpers, if you will, and maybe even trying to uh, spread the boundaries by keeping our eyes focused on Jesus. The highlight of the week last week was that so many times in our effort to change the race course, we want to do it my way. How many got that song stuck in their head that we we played last week? Yeah, we did it first the Frank Sinatra way, the my way, and then we did it, then we played, we finished it at the end with a, a gentleman that did a really nice job rewriting the words, same tune, to do it God's way. And the reality is, when we do it God's way, we'll win. We do it my way, we're set for destruction and death. So that's the course that we're on. So the race that we run 
is different today because what we're talking about is that we're going to run with purpose. We're going to run with purpose because there's joy ahead. So we're going to read the text that we talked about the last couple of weeks, and we're going to understand that Jesus is not only our focus, but in our running our race, we're going to learn that Jesus already ran his race, and he ran it well, and he completed his race. And now because of that, he's uniquely qualified to encourage us to run our race. So let's stand with me if you can. I know we stand a lot, but that's okay. Keeps the blood flowing. Let's read this together, our text. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Father, God, I pray that as we use this one more time, God, that you will just reveal the truth of what you would have us to glean from this really, really good passage. So much here in this that we can use for our lives. So I pray, God, that you will just open our spiritual eyes and our spiritual ears so we will see and hear only what you would have us to glean out of this. That you would reduce the distractions of life for the next few minutes and let us learn from you so we then can then take it and let it ingrain in our hearts and our lives and we can... Let it go with us throughout this week. So be with us now as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to focus on this part of the text today. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father, or from the throne of God. Now, last week we began to talk a little bit about the sacrifice that Jesus paid for our sin. What did Jesus really do on the cross? What did he really do? How did he really pay the price of our sin? What did it require of him? So I want to just revisit that a little bit this morning because until we can really appreciate the sacrifice that he made for us, we really can't appreciate the depth of his mercy and his grace to to forgive us of our sin. We really have to appreciate the best we can all that Jesus gave up, all that he surrendered, all that he sacrificed for, so that he then could pay the price of our sin. And to do this, we must recognize that Jesus didn't come into existence on Christmas Day. Many of us think that Jesus became God, he became God and man on Christmas Day. But no, he didn't. Jesus was fully God at all times. Jesus was fully God at the creation. He was part of the creation. He was the word that God spoke into the creation back 6,000 years ago, we believe. That's what we believe. We don't believe that this world is billions of years old. We don't believe in evolution. We believe what the Bible says. About 6,000 years ago or so, God spoke it. Jesus was there with them. The Holy Spirit was the spirit that covered the earth. And God created through the word of Christ the world. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. And then in John chapter 1, the first four verses, it says that in the beginning, the Word already existed. Who is the Word? The Word is Jesus. The Word is Jesus. He was with God at the beginning. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The him is Jesus in this. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. So the word made flesh is Jesus. And through God, through him, God spoke and created the heavens and the earth. So really, on Christmas morning... What we're really celebrating is the creator who left heavenly realm to become part of the creation. Jesus was always there with God. And so Christmas Day, Jesus didn't automatically just, God didn't create Jesus. Jesus was with God prior to that. So the creator on that day became flesh. He took on our flesh so that he could then be the sacrifice for our sin. And here's the amazing part, that when Jesus was coming to earth, he knew that he wasn't going to be acclaimed the king that he really was. When Jesus came to earth, he knew that he was coming to be a sacrifice. He knew that was his mission from the very beginning. He knew he was coming to die. And not only that, he knew that he was going to be misunderstood and he was going to be rejected and he was going to be ridiculed and he was going to be scoffed at and he was going to be scorned. Ultimately, he was going to be tortured, beaten and put to death on a very, very rugged cross. And yet he still came. I don't know how many are watching or have watched the Chosen series, but it is a very good replication, I believe, of it kind of brings to life what we read in the Bible. It's really good. If you haven't watched it, I encourage you to watch it. And uh, let it just bring alive some of the things that Jesus went through while he walked this earth. And the disciples. And the things that they had to deal with. You have to imagine they were confused. They were um, taken aback a lot because it was Jesus came and he really changed life from the Old Testament way of doing things to the new covenant that he was. So we have to recognize the, the amount of sacrifice that Jesus really gave up for us. And I know we've tried to describe the suffering and the pain that Jesus suffered on the cross, and, and um, it was great. But it was what's more suffering, what was more damaging, what was more difficult for Jesus was not just the pain of the cross, but it was that he was separated from his father. And what sin did to him from the fact that it had to, he had to be um, separated from his father's love when sin settled on him. Matthew chapter 27, 45 and 46 tells us what this was like. This was Jesus' crucifixion from noon until about three in the afternoon. Darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Did God really forsake Jesus when he hung on the cross? Jesus was quoting, actually, the opening line of Psalm 22. And it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? There's a lot to talk about here. And we're not going to take a lot of time to go through all the details of it, but did God forsake Jesus while he hung on the cross, while the sin of the world was on him? Billy Graham explained the passage this way. The penalty for sin is death, according to Romans 6.23. Death includes two dimensions, physical and spiritual. Physical death is the separation of the spirit from the body. Spiritual death is the separation of the spirit from God. Since Jesus was dying for our sin as our substitute, he was experiencing the agony of separation from his father. It was the agony of hell. See, in those moments that Jesus was hanging on the cross, taking on the sin of mankind, it was an unbearable pain of separation from his Father. He felt what it would be like to suffer in hell. Because the greatest agony of hell, yes, it's going to be torment. Yes, it's going to be thrown into a lake of fire, of burning sulfur, that you're going to feel the torment of of the burning forever and ever and ever. But the biggest torment that you're going to experience for those that go to hell is the fact that they're separated from God. We may not appreciate that what, what that means now because maybe we have a flippant attitude towards God as it is right now. Maybe it's not a big deal for us not to think it's a big deal to be separated from God. But, you know, we were created in the image of God. We were created to be in fellowship with God. We were created to be in relationship with God. Whether you know it or not, whether you realize it or not, what Jesus did on that cross for us, he took on our sin and he took the penalty of our sin so that we don't have to. Let that sink in for a minute. He took the penalty of our sin so that we don't have to. For those that reject this sacrifice, listen, they will pay their own penalty. That means that they will not only have indescribable pain, as Jesus experienced indescribable pain on the cross, They will experience their own pain in the fire of hell. But the never-ending separation from God will be so much more than that because we can't appreciate what it means. We really can't appreciate what it means to be separated from God as Jesus was until it's too late. Because our separation, the thing that's going to hurt us the most is the fact that we had a choice. We had a choice in the matter and we will have eternal regret if we didn't accept the forgiveness of Christ that would have spared us from that. We will remember that for all time. That will be an, that will be agonizing for us to recognize the fact that we had a choice and we didn't take it. Try to imagine what that means to lose all hope. I don't think we can. I don't think we can really understand. And so the reality 
of the day here that we're in right now is that Jesus is giving us that opportunity. He's giving us the choice for us to receive him so that we don't have to endure an eternity without him. I hope that makes sense. I hope that that you can appreciate what that means, not only just for Jesus, but for you and I today. Because until we can appreciate it for ourselves, then we truly can't really accept it from what Christ did. All right, now we've been talking about agony. We've been talking about enduring now. Let's talk a little bit about the joy. Hebrews 12, 2, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning at shame. How can there be joy when Jesus hung on the cross? Think about it. How can he have joy while he's enduring the pain and the separation from his father? You see, the only way that we can make any sense of this is to understand where joy would come from. Joy isn't happiness. We've talked about this in the past. Happiness and joyfulness are not the same thing. Happiness comes from our happenstance. Joy comes from something much deeper. It comes from our relationship with the joy giver. And the only joy giver that this world really has is Christ. This joy, this world does not offer a lasting joy. It might, it might offer a, a parting happiness, and we may have happiness and joy at the same time on certain occasions, but Jesus proved the fact that he could have joy while he endured the cross. That means that you and I can have joy while we're enduring our cross. So what was this joy that Jesus had? The joy that Jesus had was the fact that he was looking forward to the hope of our salvation. We were the we were the joy that Jesus had because he looked past the pain, he looked past the moment of the cross and he saw you. And he saw me. And he says, "My joy comes because what I'm doing is I'm paying for their sin." And when they receive me, that's going to bring me great joy. Joy isn't possible without hope. Joy isn't possible without hope. You see, if I'm hopeless, then there's no joy. How can I be joyful when I'm, if I'm hopeless? Have you ever sensed hopelessness? Have you ever felt the hopelessness of what this world can offer at times? Jesus felt it. He saw it, but yet because of the joy that he was before him, he changed the, 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 the hopelessness into hope because of the joy set before him. He looked forward with joy to the people he would save, even while they were far off. You see, we don't see the finish line of our race, do we? I'm 65 years old. I'll be 65. I'm hoping to live a lot longer, but I don't know what my end is going to be. I can't see my finish line. I just have to have hope and trust that it's there. (laughs) And that when I get there, I'm going to finish well. That's my goal. Jesus, as he was hanging on that cross in severe pain, separated from his father, he had joy looking forward to the day when we would find our acceptance of his sacrifice. And when I accept him as my Savior and then make him my Lord, 
it gives him great joy. The Bible says that the angels are celebrating in heaven for every lost person coming home. There's celebrations happening in heaven when a person accepts Christ here on earth because of the joy set before Christ then. And Jesus gave us joy in the hope that we have of eternal life with him. Here, listen, while we were still sinners. He died for us before we were worthy to die for. Romans chapter 5, verses 6, then 9 through 10, in the Amplified Version, it says this. Read with me on this. He says, while we were still helpless, which means powerless, to provide for our salvation, at the right time Christ died as a substitute for the ungodly. Verse 9, therefore, since we have now been justified, meaning that we're declared free of the guilt of sin, by his blood, how much more certain is it that we will be saved from the wrath of God through him? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, it is much more certain, having been reconciled, that we will be saved from the consequences of sin by his life, that is, we will be saved because Christ lives today. Christ's death and resurrection gives us hope. And when we have hope, we can have joy. Right? My Bible commentary says it this way. He says, we continue to be saved as we live by faith and in obedience to Christ. If God loved us enough to send his son to die for us while we were his enemies, how much more now that we are our as his adopted children, will he make every provision to preserve our relationship with him? You see, he doesn't just, he didn't die, then be raised from the dead to give us salvation, to leave us alone. (laughs) No, he did that so that we could have relationship with him. We are never alone in this life. I want you to know that. Many times you may feel lonely. You may feel alone and and abandoned. But I just want you to know that because Jesus willingly laid down his life for us and the joy that brought, the joy that it brought him will bring us the same level of joy and hope because of the relationship that we have now been established back with him. Does that make sense? Am I, am I lost anybody? You following me so far? I hope so because this is the crux. This is it. This is the key to salvation. So now how do we parlay this into our life? How do we apply this for us? Oswald Chambers, in his devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, says it this way. He says, if I am a friend of Jesus, I must deliberately and carefully lay down my life for him. It is a difficult thing to do, and thank God that it is. Salvation is easy for us because it costs God so much. But the exhibiting of salvation in my life is difficult. Do you, you know what he's saying there? The sacrifice, the day of salvation for us is easy because Jesus paid so much. But now, after my day of salvation, I have to lay down my life as Christ laid down his life so that I can live out my salvation. Oswald Chambers goes on, he says, God saves a person, fills him with the Holy Spirit, and then says, in effect, now you work it out in your life and be faithful to me, even though the nature of everything around you is to cause you to be 
unfaithful. You see the battle? The battle that we're up against now, now that we've been made righteous with Christ, we've been made one with him, now we have to do what Jesus did. Remember, he ran the race as an example for us. What did Jesus do? He laid down his life. He willingly laid down his life to be our sacrifice. Now I have to, after I receive him, I have to willingly continue to lay down my life to honor him and to keep that relationship alive. Remember, we've been talking about life as a marathon over the past few weeks. And running our race as Jesus ran his race, there was joy in the midst of his pain and suffering. Everything was intended to bring Jesus shame, but Jesus endured everything so that we can also win our race and that we can live above the shame and the guilt of this world. Do we understand that point? Is that, I think that's really important, that we have to recognize that Jesus willingly ran his race to the point of death, and he did it without shame. He did it without shame. Now, where else do we see shame mentioned in Scripture? Because shame's a big deal. Shame is part of guilt. Where else did we see shame? In the story of creation, go back to the beginning, God made Adam and Eve in perfect relationship with each other, and with God, meaning that they had no sin in them, and therefore they had no what? They had no shame. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but felt no shame. Now, if you were naked today, I bet you'd feel some shame. Yeah, I would. We sure, certainly we would. Why? Because there's sin in the world. Back when they were perfect, they had no sin. There was no reason to be shameful. They were naked before each other and before God, and they had no shame. Shame wasn't something that man was designed to have to deal with. It wasn't to be part of our life. Shame is a result of sin. And as a result, Satan has used shame as a tool to bring continual separation between God and man forever. Shame is part of the curse of sin. So dying on a cross to Jesus was intended to be a shameful death. It was intended to bring shame. Because you remember that in the Roman day back then, crucifixion was a, was a normal way of punishing criminals. And so they would normally hang men in a public square or out in a, by the walkway or by, uh, out by the byways where people would come and go and they would see these men hanging on a cross, suffocating, dying, and it would cost them many days, two or three, four days, they would hang on a cross because they hung on a cross and they died through suffocation more than anything else and exposure to the sun and other things. These men weren't whipped and beat like Jesus were. Jesus was whipped and beat where blood was running out of his body. Jesus basically bled to death before he gave up his spirit. But normal crucifixion wasn't that brutal. It was just a painful death. But it was meant to bring shame, not only the criminal, but also on his family. It was a shameful way to die. And it was a way that the Romans did it as a way of of example, 
They wanted to bring example to people of what it is. If you break the law, if you're convicted of uh, if you're a criminal or a felon, this is what you're going to do. It's going to be a shameful way to die. So Jesus was dying a death that was intended to be shameful, but Jesus wasn't embarrassed to die on the cross for us that day. You see, because what happened, what he did is that he scorned the shame knowing that it was going to bring life to those that he loved. He had a bigger purpose in dying on a cross than just dying at the hand of the Roman guards. He knew that the evil that Satan was trying to do in this shameful death was going to be the thing that set people free of shame in the future. That was the joy set before him. He knew that the shame that was intended to be on him was being destroyed because Jesus defeated shame. He defeated it. We have no reason to be shameful. Listen, you have a past life, right? Maybe it's not something you're proud of. On your own, you shouldn't be proud of it. But when you give it to Jesus, when Jesus covers up your past with his blood, he covers it up and he removes the guilt. He justifies you. That's called justification. Just as if you had never sinned. He totally removes your sin. Therefore, he takes away your shame. Jesus died on a cross to destroy the power of shame. And the enemy doesn't like that. The enemy doesn't like it because he wants you to deal with shame. He wants you to hang your head. He wants you to feel bad about yourself. He wants you not to be able to have the joy of the Lord in you because he wants you to deal and live in shame. You see, Satan had a plan for a shameful death, but Jesus turned it into a, turned shame into joy. Jesus converted shame to joy because he had a purpose in it. We need to let that just settle in a little bit here. You need to let that settle in because Jesus died on the cross to take away your guilt, take away your shame, take away your regrets. He died to give you life and life to the fullest. And life to the fullest does not include shame. Life to the fullest does not include regrets. You can let it all go. Your fears of your past... You can be delivered from them because that's what Jesus did. So now where is Jesus today? Let's go to the next part. After Jesus, after he died for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning at shame. Now where is he at? He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He sat down at the right hand of his father. The beautiful thing about all this is that death couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't contain him, right? We've all heard it. He rose from the dead, and now he's sitting in victory at the hand of his heavenly Father. Back in the day then, there was great significance for one that sat at the right hand of those that are are in authority. Because a person sitting at the right hand of a person in authority, that person sitting at the right hand was given the same authority and the same a level of prominence as a one that he was sitting next to. There was a big deal about being at the right hand of the Father. So Jesus there now is at of equal power, an equal authority of God. And here's the most important thing. What's he doing as he's sitting there? 
You think he's just sitting there doing nothing? <laughs> no, the most important part is that God has got Jesus. Jesus has an assignment. He's still working on our behalf. Jesus, even though he's already finished his race and he's run it and he's successfully completed it, he's now working on our behalf today. Romans 8.34. It says, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, right? Jesus died on the cross. He went into the tomb. Three days later, he was risen to life. And then now he's at the right hand of God. And what's he doing? He's interceding for you. He's praying for us. He's praying for us. He's actively involved in our life. Christ is praying protection over us as we're running our race. Amen. That's power. That's authority. We don't have to hang our heads anymore because we have the creator who became the creation, who became our sacrifice, who died for us, who rose again, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and now he's working on our behalf. He's praying for us. You see, the enemy of our soul will do everything he can to discourage us from staying in the race. Let me just say that. Understand what's going on here. The devil doesn't care if you start the race. He doesn't care if you start. He doesn't care if you get saved. Let me just say it this way. The devil doesn't care if you get saved because his intent is to keep you from finishing the race. His intent is to keep you from finishing. He knows it's a long journey. He knows that many people will start, they'll get saved, and they'll take off in a sprint, and they'll get all excited, but they won't stay focused. They won't get into the Bible. They won't read what the Scripture says. They won't become discipled. They won't follow through on their great salvation that Jesus bore. See, the devil knows that. and He's counting on that. He's counting on you and I to get burned out in the race and to quit. And that's what he's doing. He's doing everything he can to discourage us, to overwhelm us, to dishearten us, to tell you it's not worth the race. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt the discouragement of life? I think we all have. Maybe more than others. The devil is trying to do everything he can to make you give up. But I just want to encourage you today because Jesus not only began his race, he finished it so that we can begin and finish ours. There's no giving up in the mind of God. There's no saying, I tried it and it didn't work for me in the mind of God. The joy that Jesus had in his great suffering wasn't in vain. If he willingly laid down his life for us, he will willingly give us the provision to help us run and finish our race. Amen. He didn't want us just to start and quit. No, he wanted us to start and finish. That's why we say when we get saved that he becomes our Savior. And then we willingly make him our Lord. Lordship denotes ownership. And when I make him my Lord, I'm saying, I'm going to lay down my life for you the way you laid down your life for me. And because of that, we're going to have an ongoing, continual relationship 
And I'm going to depend upon you, Holy Spirit, for my victory. I'm not going to do it on my own because I can't. I get too discouraged if I try it on my own. I get too burned out. It's too heavy. It's too much of a race. It's too long. Too many things against us come in this world. Too many pressures. But when I can trust God and I can lean on Jesus, then I can let the joy that was set before him as he endured the cross, I can make that my joy as I'm trusting him as I endure my race and, my, and I endure my cross. I got a little video I want to show you for the, from the Tim Tebow Foundation. Tim Tebow, you know who he is? Tim Tebow was a professional football player. No, just watch this. The author of Hebrews is writing, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him. You see, Jesus had a mindset that we need to have. For the joy set before him, thinking, okay, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to experience this shame. I'm going to be crucified more than we could possibly imagine. God the Father is going to turn his back on me, which we can't even comprehend. But why am I doing it? I'm doing it for the joy that's set before me. What is that joy? It's when he goes to heaven and he knows that he overcame all of sin and shame and doubt for us. And so we can be made right with the God of this universe. And through that, we can tell the rest of the world. So what is the joy before us? Well, I'll tell you the joy before me and for our team is that we get to tell the entire world about a God that loves them so much and we get to hug every single boy and girl and we get to love them and we get to change the world for every single person with special needs and the joy that is set before me is one day, one day our team is getting to heaven and there is going to be a corner of heaven that is there because of TTF and most of those people on earth were the least we're the last, we're the hurting, we're the special needs, and they were the forgotten ones. But I promise in heaven they will not be the forgotten ones. So what is the joy set before us today? What are you doing with the time that you have? We started the sermon off by talking about all this, the time that we have. We all have 24 hours in a day, right? How am I spending it? Am I doing it to bring pleasure to me? Is, is it all about me? Is my life all about how I can get the best out of this life, get the most out of it for me? Or can I look the way Jesus looked at the race? For the joy set before him, he endured the race, scorning at shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. What's my goal in my race? What's your goal for your race? What's the joy set before you? Jackie, would you come, please? What's the joy set before you today? Have you ever thought about it that way? Have you ever thought about the fact that you have a choice in what you need to be doing today so that your goal can be a lofty goal, can be a high goal, can be an end goal of eternal things, not just the temporary pleasures we get in this life, not that they're bad, they're just temporary there's nothing wrong with enjoying a good day in the, on the ice fishing. Right, Rip? There's nothing wrong with enjoying a good day in the golf course. There's nothing wrong with doing that. Yes, that's just not eternal. Those days end. But the joy set before us as we, as Tim Tebow talked about, 
he has a foundation that is bound to go out and help as many people as he can. Shouldn't that be our goal as well? Shouldn't the joy set before us to go out and hurt, help the hurting and the lost in our world? Look at folks, there's a lot of people that aren't here today that could be. Maybe we have to go out more. Maybe we have to do more in our world. Maybe we have to set our pleasures aside for the moment so we could endure the things we have to endure so we can have the joy set before us, which is seeing people in heaven as a result of our faithfulness on earth through the power of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Boy, I hope so. I hope these messages that we've been speaking about the last few weeks, I hope they stick with you. I hope you take them into the week with you. Let them challenge you through the week. You see, our our eternal joy will be when we can first set our eyes on Jesus. You know, I don't think we can appreciate how good that's going to be. When we close our eyes here for the last time, and we open our eyes in heaven, and the first face that we're going to see is Jesus. Close your eyes for a minute. Close your eyes and try to imagine that. Try to imagine your first face you look at when you open your eyes in heaven is Jesus. If we can really do that, folks, if we can really grasp that, everything on this world will fade away. Everything will grow dim. When I can know that Christ and all that he has in store for us will bring us the joy that will make our enduring worth it. Run your race with purpose. Run your race with purpose because there's joy ahead as you do. There's a joy set before you ahead as you run your race with the purpose of running your race the way Christ ran his. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for this word of encouragement today. It's encouraging, Lord, because you knew the struggles of our day. And they don't even come close to the struggle that you had. But yet you were able to have joy for the things that were set before you. And I pray, God, that you would give us the ability to have joy in the days that are set before us. We were the joy that was set before Christ. Now, I pray that you become the joy that's set before us today. For those of us that are struggling with issues, maybe we're lonely. Maybe we've had a lost a loved one that have passed away recently. Maybe we have other issues. Maybe we have children. Maybe we have relationship issues with our family. God, I mean, the issues are as varied as there are people here in this place today. But God, I pray that we would learn what it means to lay down our life so that we can gain yours. And I pray, Father, that you would just send your mercy and your grace to us, your Holy Spirit, to convict and comfort us as we lay down our lives willingly for the joy set before us. And I just pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. Stand with me, if you will. Let's just sing the song that Jackie's playing as we prepare to go home. Let me ask you this morning. What we just sang, can you do that? Can you gladly bow your knee today? Can you gladly bow it? Or are there things in this world that are just holding you back? Is there anything that's so good in this world that it's worth not bowing your knee to Jesus for all eternity? Think about it. Think about what you're giving up. Think about the exchange. Can I tell you it's worth it to bow your knee to Christ today to gain eternity? To give up the temporary pleasures and the pain of this world to only gain eternal pleasure and relationship with our Creator. Oh, man. Jackie, let's sing that course again. Let's sing it again.
Father, accept our worship today. Accept our sacrifice today. Lord, as we gladly bow our knee to you, God, would you just fill us with joy? Would you just give us a sense of joy in our hearts today as we go to our homes and our go to a place of business this week? No matter what it is, if I'm retired or working or whatever my lot in life is, would you just fill us with the joy of what you have in store for us? God, I pray. I pray. I pray. I pray. God, you'd fill us up. I thank you for your mercies and your grace. Go with us, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Enjoy the great day that God has in store for us today.